Welcome to another episode of It's a Long Beach Thing, where we bring on guests and we talk about this beautiful city we call Long Beach. And now, here's your host, motivational coach, Paul Fortune. Welcome to another episode of It's a Long Beach Thing. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and like us on Facebook on It's a Long Beach Thing. We have another great episode for you today. We have my new friend, entrepreneur, Sheila Akbar. Sheila, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Paul. Great, great. Um, we met uh, briefly on LinkedIn and I, I really in, enjoyed your profile and I know that uh, you love Long Beach, and I thought, I got to bring you on. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It's always fun to talk about Long Beach. No problem. So let's dive in, shall we? Mm-hmm. What's your association with this great city of Long Beach? I live here. I uh, call it home. have been here for about two years now. Previously, was living on the north side of LA, um, but definitely prefer it down here. This is much more my speed. Right on. So was, was it... But you're not originally from the Southern California area. No, I am a transplant. So I grew up in Michigan, Mm -hmm. cold, snowy Michigan, where it's gray nine or 10 months out of the year, and then lived most of my young adult life um, until my late 30s on the East Coast um, in Boston and New York. Um, Some family stuff brought us out west. We were in Seattle for a little bit, and it was just too rainy there, but loved the east coast or the west coast vibe much better than the east coast. So then we were like, all right, where do we go next? And um, sunny LA was calling us. So we came down here in 2017, um, and then we were in Pasadena and Glendale for a little bit. And then my husband is actually doing a master's of fine arts at Cal State Long Beach in sculpture, and that's what brought us down here two years ago. That's great. That's great. But you, I, I believe if I, if I have uh, the right notes here, you went to Harvard. Is that correct? I did. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Uh-huh. Right on. So was that, a, was that a dream for you to go to that school? I know you're from Michigan, but. You yeah. Know. Well, I'll be honest with you. Um, and, and I'll be really honest because I think it's important for people to know this. It was my parents' dream. Hmm. I don't regret it. Right. Certainly it was an amazing opportunity. I met so many wonderful people. I learned so much. It opened so many doors for me, but it was not my dream. It was my parents' dream. And I think it was my parents' dream because they, they grew up in Bangladesh. Harvard was one of the only colleges they had ever heard of. And so of course it's like the pinnacle of success. And they were like, yeah, our kids are going to go there. Um, I think that I worked as hard as I did in high school to just get out of Michigan. Honestly, I was like, well, I got to go somewhere really impressive. So they let me out of the state. Um, But um, yeah, I think the stars aligned. I I don't think that if I applied now that I would get in to Harvard. Um, It's gotten so, so much more competitive. Mm -hmm. um, And the things that uh, kids these days are doing is really impressive. Um, And, you know, I had nowhere near that level of achievement. Um, so it, it's kind of crazy, honestly, what, what kids these days do to get into, to some of these very elite schools. Um, but you know, I really enjoyed it. I think if I had to do it all over again, I probably would have gone to, um, a less high profile school, one where I felt like I could maybe 
explore a little bit more and figure myself out instead of getting to a place where everybody expects you to do great things from day one. You know, that was a little humbling for me. Um, but like I said, no regrets. Well, I think you're being a little modest because I, I know <laughs> we're probably around the, the, the same age. And I know growing up, Harvard was Harvard. And it was hard to get into regardless. Yeah, you're probably right. It might be a little bit harder now, but I think it was it was still extremely hard to get into Harvard when you were applying. So you definitely put in the work. So did school come easy for you or or was it was it a combination of the two? It was a combination of things. You know, um, you know, my business is college admissions, so I might get a little technical on this, but I'll, I'll pull back the curtain a little bit. So when I applied to Harvard, the acceptance rate was something like 13%, which is Jeez. pretty intense. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of competition, right? Uh, this year, it's like 3.4%. So it has gotten even more selective, for yeah. sure. Um, the number of students applying has gone up also since when I applied. 25 some years ago. Um, so um, there's that. Also, I was applying from a rural high school in central Michigan. They don't send kids to Harvard from there, like ever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so me applying, I really stood out. Mm -hmm. right? I, I um, did do very well in school. I did very well on the SAT. Um, I think I have a mind for those sorts of things like those. I mean, it's maybe why I run a company that also does test preparation. I'm really good at it. Um, but I think my circumstances benefited me quite a bit. Um, I joke with colleagues in the industry that there's actually like a South Dakota benefit, like the acceptance rate for students who apply to schools like Harvard from South Dakota is far higher than any other state. And that's because they send so few students to those schools. So the, you know, the proportion is just higher, but that definitely had an impact on, on my chances there as well. I was a, you know, brown Muslim girl growing up in central Michigan where there weren't that many of us. Um, I was in a punk rock band. Uh, I, um, I did a lot of fundraising for um, a charity that my family is affiliated with back in Bangladesh. Um, I spent a lot of time like running all the clubs at school. I played varsity soccer. We were state champs my senior year. Um, I ran the student council. I was planning homecoming. And a lot of it was because honestly, I hope my parents don't listen to this ever. My parents were really strict. And so if I wasn't doing something related to school, I had to be home. I couldn't go over to a friend's house. I couldn't have friends over. And so it was the only way it could be social is just to be really involved at school. So regularly, I wasn't coming home till 630 at night because I had soccer practice or I had this club or I had that thing to do. Um, and it allowed me to have kind of a social life um, in high school, which my parents, um, you know, <laughs> controlled very tightly. Well, then how did you get in a punk rock band? Yes, that also they were not very happy about. But I was in a punk rock band with two other brown Muslim girls who lived in central Michigan. And, um, you know, my parents were very good friends with their parents. And they thought, oh, these these kids are a good influence on each other. We can let them hang out if they want to play guitar. That's fine. They can do that. Um, but uh, yeah, my parents definitely um, were not happy with that um, and made it a little hard for us to play gigs and you know, that whole teenage parents just don't understand kind of thing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. 
Yeah. So when you when you got to Harvard, obviously you're you're going by yourself. Your parents are staying yeah. in Michigan, I I assume. Yep. Did did you did a little bit of rebellion come out of you? Because oh my you were, god, too much. Yeah, too yeah. much. I you know all the rules were gone. I could do whatever I wanted. Um, I you know probably talked to my parents every two or three days, something like that. But you know they weren't there. Cell phones weren't a thing. They couldn't actually see my location the way we could now. You know wasn't FaceTiming with them so they could see what was in my background or anything. Uh, so yeah, I definitely had a lot of fun in college. Um, but quite quickly, so almost as quickly as I realized, oh, all of these expectations are no longer on me. I could do whatever I want. Um, almost as quickly as I realized, like, okay, it's free for all now. I also realized, wait, I need, I need to know my boundaries. Like, who am I? What, what do I think is okay? Um, how much time should I be spending on school? Now that my parents aren't dictating that I spend all my time on school. What is the appropriate amount for me and how do I decide it? So it was a real growth experience for me, um, but I was sort of like thrown in the deep end because I didn't have a chance to kind of decide those things for myself in high school. They were always decided for me. So college was a huge learning experience in terms of, you know, who do I want to be? How do I become that person? Was there a dip in your GPA at that point for two reasons, <laughs> because it's Harvard and two, because you're kind of on your own type? Yeah, of definitely both of those reasons. I remember um, one of my first first or second night there, I was sitting on the kind of steps of my dorm and um, a, a guy was walking in and he recognized me because we actually went to elementary school together. And I was like, oh, that's crazy. Like we knew each other so many years ago. Now we're both here. And I thought. I don't know. He was a sixth grade friend. I don't know how well I really knew him, but I, you know, I thought we were like same kind of level of intelligence. Right. And here I was girl from a small town in Michigan, feeling really intimidated by everybody around me. And I was like, Oh, here's this guy. I know we're on the level we're we're like around the same. And then the next day was like the math placement exam. And he ended up sitting next to me and he finished that thing in like 15 minutes and placed into like the highest level math class that a freshman could take. And, you know, I took the full time, didn't even finished it. And, you know, I placed into a decent math class, but it certainly wasn't the highest level. It was extremely humbling. Um, but yeah, my, my GPA took a dip for sure. Um, but also I recognize like GPA doesn't matter all that much anymore. Um, you know, I was still trying to figure it out. Of course it does matter in a lot of ways, but, I wasn't so locked in on having a 4.0 the way I was in, in high school. Um, but yeah, I had to learn how to study differently. I had to learn how to take notes differently. Lectures are so much different. I mean, you know this, lectures are so much different than how you learn in high school. And that's like a whole different way of processing information. Um, but pretty quickly I learned the system. Um, you know, if you go to your discussion section and do the little, uh, problem sets that they give you, well, you kind of know what's going to be on the exam. But what felt optional was actually not optional. I realized that pretty early. Like what was not optional, like going to class or? No, like these discussion sections, there would be oh, like extra review sessions. And, you know, probably the first couple of weeks I was like, I don't need that. Yeah. And then I was like, holy crap, I need that. <laughs> and then, you you know, you hear from other people like, yeah, he did this exact problem with different numbers at the review session. Weren't you there? And it's like, oh, I should probably go to that review session. 
<laughs> so things did like you that. Major, did you major? Uh, did you was your major different? Would you have wanted to do a different major than you did because of your parents? Like, what did you so, major in, and what would you want to major in? Yeah. So I found ways to rebel mm -hmm. even when I was still at home, and so one of the things that I had decided early on was. I was going to be a doctor like my parents wanted me to be, but I was going to major in something that I was actually interested in, just do my pre-med requirements on the side. So um, one of the reasons I was actually excited about Harvard, um, you know, my parents were excited for their own set of reasons. One of the reasons I was really excited is because there was a professor there who taught Persian poetry. And I had gotten obsessed with Persian poetry. I actually have this book on my desk, if you're gonna use the video, there's the book. I got this book when I was Rumi? 15, Rumi. Rumi. Yeah, um, he's like the most popular poet in America and he lived in the 1200s in modern day Turkey. Wasn't Turkey back then. So, mm. you know, it's crazy that yeah. this is the most read poet in America, right? Um, but uh, I, you know, fell in love with this poetry and was like, okay, I'm gonna learn the original language um, and, see what it has to offer me. So I was majoring in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. Uh, I was the only major my year. I think that also contributed to my admissibility to Harvard. There was like no one who wanted to study this and they had this whole department. Um, but I was doing that while I was also taking, you know, biology and organic chemistry and physics and all of these things. Um, but about three years in, it was probably somewhere in the middle of my junior year of college, I was like, you know what? I don't really want to be a doctor. That's not the life I want. I think it's a noble profession, obviously offers a lot of job security and respect in society, but I was like, yeah, just, it's not what I want. So I dropped pre-med, kind of broke my dad's heart around it. Um, but of course I continued with Near Eastern languages. Um, and then I, I did not know how to think about what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, and at the time, Wall Street was just hungry for people from, you know, highly pedigreed schools. So I kind of got swept up in that and I went and worked on Wall Street for um, about two years. Uh, um, after graduating from Harvard? After graduating from Harvard, yeah. And uh, I was pretty miserable because, yeah, I, I, I wasn't interested in that. I didn't enjoy the work. Uh, you know, it was quite glamorous. I made a lot of money. I lived in New York City as a 22 year old, which is like, you know, kind of the dream. But um, it just wasn't very satisfying to me. So as my two years were kind of coming to an end, I was like, I got to figure something out. Mm. Floundered for a little bit. And then, uh, you know, I don't remember the exact day, but I was always reading poetry and translating poetry that I had studied in high school when I was feeling stressed out. And one day, I think it just occurred to me like, oh, I should probably go and study this thing that I continue to love and continue to enjoy studying that I keep coming back to. So I went back to Harvard and I did my master's um, to really to kind of test the waters. I, I thought like I would like to do a PhD, but you know, I wasn't all that serious of a college student. So I was like, well, let's not commit to the PhD yet. Let's just see if I like this. And I loved it. I loved everything about it. Um, so then I went and did my PhD. I left Harvard. I went to Indiana University um, and uh, I studied comparative literature and Near Eastern languages. So I actually have two PhDs um, because, you know, whatever that overachieving bug my parents uh, somehow planted in me is still, still definitely there. Um, yeah, and I, I studied all kinds of poetry and I wrote my dissertation on 16th century love poetry in Arabic, Persian, French, Italian, and English. 
Um, and I loved that experience. Of course, grad school doesn't pay very well. I, I was teaching classes. I was tutoring on the side. Um, and that's where I think my love of uh, teaching really, really grew. Um, I, I do have memories of being a young child telling my parents I wanted to be a teacher and them being like, no, you'll be a doctor. <laughs> um, but, you know, it came full circle and I was like, oh yeah, teaching, that's a thing that I used to love and it's really fulfilling to me. I think I'm pretty good at it. Um, and so I was, I was writing my dissertation. I moved back to Boston and a friend of mine had started Signet Education where I now work. And uh, I joined him and the rest is kind of history. I don't know. I'm going to dive into that. But first, sure. I want to ask you, how many how many languages can you speak? Oh, you know, I'm not using any of them regularly enough to say that I can actually speak them. I know like seven or eight languages. Uh, mm -hmm. If you give me some time with a piece of paper, I will translate all of them for you. Um, I'm not always the best at speaking on the spot. So, so but if, if you went if you went on vacation to a certain country, that you kind of know the language you'd be able to get by basically yeah yeah um after a couple of days of just sort of being immersed in it it kind of mm -hmm. all comes back so yeah i'm pretty good in most areas of the world except for uh southeast asia mm. i don't know i don't know a language from that area of the world wow okay yeah. all right well let's let's dive into uh your, your profession sure. uh education um, because have you did you have you did you branch off from that and you're doing your own thing too or or Oh, you're still with no. Okay. Um, I'm I'm now an owner of Signet. Okay, um, so, okay, so you're okay, so you yep. you're you're okay. It's like so it's kind of like a franchise type thing. Not at all. No, it's oh. one single business. Um, and we we don't really have we're remote only. Uh -huh. Um, so we don't really have a location. Um, but uh, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I'll I'll back up so you can edit that. <laughs> okay, no worries. <laughs> So yeah, it's one one uh, one entity. I just happen to live on the West Coast, and the rest of my team is on the East Coast. Um, but we serve students all over the country, all over the world. Um, so you know, there are times where I'm up at ungodly hours to talk to my students who are in the Philippines, um, where you know exactly on opposite sides of the world. So it becomes a little challenging sometimes. Um, but it's been a great adventure. I've been there for 13 years now. We do tutoring, test prep, college admissions, and executive function coaching for students eighth grade and up. So majority of them are in high school, a good amount are in college looking towards grad school. So when you first got into this company, how old was the company at the time? I was about five years old when I joined. Oh, okay. So five year, years old. Mm -hmm. old uh, and, and this was a, a friend of you, that, friends of yours that started the, started the mm -hmm. original school. Mm -hmm. And what was the curriculum when you first got into it? Was it was it the same, or, or have, has it evolved through the years? It's definitely evolved, and I would say there was no curriculum when I joined. It was one of the things that I I brought in structure to the uh -huh. business, um, to put it mildly. Um, so I joined just starting as a tutor, and you know my my sweet spot was really the SAT and the ACT writing, editing, that kind of work. Um, and pretty quickly, as I talked to some of the other tutors, I was like, oh, we teach this in very different ways. We should probably write this down and like train people so they have multiple ways to teach different students. Because mm -hmm. one of the things that we do at Signet is we individualize everything. So we really want to get to understand a student, what their struggles are, 
um, the way they enjoy learning, um, not necessarily their learning style, like is it auditory or visual or or hands-on, though that's part of it. It's really about how can we make this as engaging as possible for you? Because you're struggling with this. We want to make you feel comfortable. We want you to be excited instead of intimidated by whatever this material is. So I started by kind of consolidating all the best practices from our tutors and then realized, wow, we really need to train some of these people because they don't have a way to do it. They just kind of wing it every time. So I basically, I I created a, a training and professional development department within Signet where I built curriculum, I trained students, or I trained tutors, I ended up hiring tutors, firing tutors in some cases, um, and really just kind of bringing some level of professionalism and standardization to everything that we did. Um, And that I started in test prep uh, doing that. Um, And then I I did that for our academic tutoring where we help kids with whatever their classes happen to be. Um, And then I took over our college admissions business. So we have former admissions officers from colleges all around the country working with our students. Um, And it was also not very standardized. Um, the uh, pricing wasn't super clear. Parents didn't really know what to expect, but they did want someone to kind of be their guide through this whole process. So I went out and I hired a bunch more people. I created structure, I created curriculum, standardized our pricing, created some packages. Um, And at that point, um, it was probably 2013, they named me director of education. So then I was like truly um, responsible for all all of the quality of the service that we delivered um, and helping people become better instructors. Um, And then in 2017, I became president and COO because honestly, my time on Wall Street taught me a lot about the fundamentals of running a business, uh, how to create good models, how to keep a budget, um, how to use you know, all the advanced functions in Excel. Um, and so I started um, handling kind of our finances and our business strategy um, and uh, became a, a half owner in uh, 2018, So you bought, you bought into the company then? Uh, sweat equity, yeah, actually sweat I earned equity, it, yeah. um, which is nice. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, now Jay, my business partner and I just run as equal partners and he's a little bit more behind the scenes. I'm talking to every client to make sure we're giving them an individualized solution. Um, I'm still doing, you know, the thought leadership for the company, making sure our curriculums uh, are really addressing the needs of students today, because of course that changes every year. Um, And then um, doing a lot of the kind of uh, more strategic hiring and, and professional development type work. Um, but yeah, I kind of run the whole business. <laughs> wow. Good for you. Let me, let, there's a lot to unpack there. First, um, the students that are, the, they come into your, 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 uh, curriculum there. Uh, it's, uh, I'm assuming that these students are, 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 are fairly good at, 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 at school and you're, you're basically prepping them to go into, um, some good universities and, or, do you also have another set of students that maybe not that great in school and you just bring them up to speed? Uh, we have a wide spectrum of students, certainly encompassing both of those groups that you just mentioned. So there are definitely some students who are like, I am aiming for MIT or Princeton or whatever it may be. And they want to make sure they're doing everything right, that they have a good mentor, someone to bounce ideas off of, someone who can um 
help them expand their horizons a little bit, push them a little bit more. Um, I would say that's maybe 20 to 30% of our clients. Um, we definitely have students at the, I don't want to say the other end of the spectrum, but very different coming from a different place where they may be struggling in school. They may have learning differences. They may have just no confidence in their abilities uh, at all. And we really work with them to help them understand the roots of their challenges and how they can, you know, improve their performance, improve their confidence. And, and everything we do is from a very holistic point of view. So it's not just we want to get you a better grade. It's we want you to actually learn some stuff and enjoy yourself and, you know, kind of encourage that love of learning and that that curiosity. Um, there may be like a third group of students as well, which are students who, for whatever reason, are just like unfamiliar with the higher education system in the US. So either they may be the first in their family to be thinking about college, or um, maybe their family is very well educated, but they're new to the United States. So the system here is very different than in a lot of places in the world. And they want to make sure that they understand what's happening and that they're prioritizing the right things. Yeah, and I would imagine that uh, probably the majority of your, your students, whether they're really good in school or whether they're not, they're kind of lost sometimes where they, they don't know where they want to go. They don't know what school they want to go to. Do you have students? Because I, I know that we're in a in a, um, a culture now where, you know, a lot, lot more kids go to go to college than ever mm -hmm. before level. It seems like it's rising and rising and rising. Um, but do you ever have like students where um well you know where we're, we're they're not really that great in school they're coming to you guys because they they, they just need to pass high school and you know the, you know and they, and they may feel bad we're like oh man i i really got to go to, to school but like you know when when our well i i know your parents your parents didn't grow up in the they grew they grew up okay so yeah. like my, my parents i mean uh, my, my stepdad went to college but my my, my mom didn't my mom went to junior college but mm -hmm. at that time there was a lot, a lot of people that, that didn't have to go to college or didn't want to go to college and they yeah. could get a pretty good, good career and, 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 and such. And now it's kind of changed through the years where they've put an emphasis on a lot of going to, to, to school and stuff like that. And, and I feel like there's sometimes there's some pressure on some of these kids where they feel in the back of their head, well, I, I, I should go to college because that's what we're supposed to do, but I really don't want to. Mm -hmm. So what what do you tell those kind of students? Yeah, we do have those kinds of students. And, and you know, I want to be really clear that um, work has changed faster than we can understand it. Um, it's not just everybody started working remotely and that's more common now, though that has introduced major changes in the way we work and the way we think about work and the skills we are looking for in the workforce. But technology has changed so much. I mean, it has probably just changed in the few seconds from when I started this sentence to now. Um, and technology is really going to disrupt the workforce. And so I always caution parents, like, don't put your kids on a trajectory for the time period that you graduated college in, right? The world has changed. The world has changed so much in just the last three years, if you think about it, right? Um, and the things that people are going to be looking for in the future, and I don't have a crystal ball, but my guess is 
it's going to be things that can't be done by AI. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to involve relationships. It's going to involve creativity. And it's going to involve, you know, those sort of nuanced things that only humans can really do well. And eventually some of those things are going to be taken over by some kind of technology too, right? Maybe not all of them. But, um, you know, I think we have a lot of thinking to do as a society in terms of like, what do we prioritize? And how do we account for those changes in, um, you know, tomorrow's workforce? How do we make sure that our high schools and our colleges are still preparing students well for that, right? And I think there's a really strong argument to be made that not everybody needs to go to college. Um, a college degree, honestly, doesn't mean as much as it used to. And there are still plenty of jobs that you don't need a college degree for. Um, I don't even hear any of this background noise, but I've got some plumbers here that are great and they are making a pretty penny on what they're doing for me today. Um, they may have gone to college, I don't know, but they've got vocational training um, and they've got a very stable, well-paying career. Um, so you gotta think about what your goals are and what your strengths are. And um, some students may not thrive in a traditional learning environment. They may do better in a hands-on environment where they're learning on the job, or um, there are a lot of sort of non-traditional schools out there that are like more project-based learning as opposed to, you know, your typical lecture uh, style, style classroom. So um, there are a lot of options out there. Um, I'm encouraged by um, the movement towards making, you know, kind of the first two years of college free. Um, or community college, junior college, state university systems, free or very cheap um, to enable more people to get the education that's going to help them succeed. But success doesn't necessarily mean a college degree from a brand named college anymore at all. Yes, and I, and I think another piece of, of the puzzle is even if some of these kids can get into these high level schools, maybe they can't get a scholarship. Or, or, or so there, a lot of these kids have to go into so much debt and then all of a sudden they, they go into the school, they get on all this debt and then they realize, oh, you know what? I don't like this major. I don't like this or I want to drop out this and that. And that debt doesn't go away. All right. They, they, they have to carry this debt. So I almost feel like if you don't know what you want to do, don't worry about it. Go travel. Do something else, do some oddball work, you know, to pay the bills, but you don't have to go to college right away, you know, discover yourself a little bit. Um, uh, and I think that would be a great thing for some of these kids to not just straight up go to the school, put oh, this much pressure on themselves, get yeah. into debt. And even if they do graduate, a lot of times, you know this better than I do, most people don't, whatever they major in, they, they do work that's opposite of what they, they majored right. in. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I really love is a gap year um, or a gap two years. <laughs> uh, I think that's such a valuable experience. If you think about it, college outside of the United States or university outside of the United States, that's what they call it out there, um, is much more of a training program for a specific career, right? So if you're in the UK, you have to, at age 18, decide what your career path is going to be. And that's your major. And there is no switching. If you want to switch, you start over. <laughs> you got to start all the way over, right? Um, you graduate with a degree in medicine or a degree in law or a degree in, um, you know, whatever it happens to be. And then that ends up being your career, right? Uh, 
and here as an American, I'm like, well, that's a lot of pressure on an 18 year old to know what you're going to do. But there's also a different attitude towards career in America. Like your career is your identity. And it's not always the case in, in other places, certainly in some places it is. But um, here we see college as sort of like a sandbox. <laughs> it's like where you go to finish growing up a little bit. Um, it's certainly an important time of social growth as well. And I think most people will say like the thing that they really carry with them from college are their friendships or the experiences they had at, you know, doing stupid college stuff. Right. Um, and, and it wasn't necessarily something they learned in a classroom. Um, so there's just a different attitude towards the purpose of higher education here versus in other places. And part of that has to do with just the system that we've built here, but with a gap year, you get a taste of that. Um, okay, let me go work a job or let me go um, volunteer somewhere or, you know, depending on what you can afford, uh, let me take an adventure, right? I'm going to travel or whatever it is. Um, but you learn so much about the world. You learn so much about yourself, um, what you can and cannot tolerate in a job. <laughs> um, and you might actually hit upon something that you really, really love. Um, that you're going to want to study in college or that you're going to pursue as a career. Um, and especially since I was just talking about how college is a place to like finish growing up, you do some growing up in those two years and you're going to be a more serious, more dedicated, more organized student um, because we know that um, young people's brains don't stop developing until they're 25. Their brains are just not fully formed. <laughs> so um there are late bloomers um, even later than 25. <laughs> and sometimes you just need to take that extra time. And, and we don't all have to be on the same timeline. It's not a race to be you know, 18 and in the best position of your life, right? Um, life is so much more than that. Absolutely. And you alluded to it with the changing of technology and people. There's going to be careers that that aren't thought of yet, but because of technology, they're going to be opened up because of technology, and those might go away. And then another one, you know, mm -hmm. it's just it's just going to be a crazy period of time. It's going to be a, a, a beautiful time, though. But mm -hmm. with that being said, though, you know, especially in elementary school, middle school, high school, um, it's kind of set up in a way like it was back in the the 20s where it's kind of factory right mm. you know you had a factory job where you punched in punched out and that's kind of how school's been set up you know as you know you get up and this you have this yeah. structure with that being said and, and the workforce being uh, so much different especially with COVID and everything like that do you think it would be a good idea to maybe uh, change the way we kind of do uh, school as a whole I mean, I, I, there are a lot of really great ideas out there, for sure. Um, and a lot of them have to do with allowing teenagers to get more sleep. Um, and, you know, starting school later, having a different schedule. Um, if you think about it, our, our school system is set up to allow the adult workforce to have a nine to five. Yeah. Um, it's the only reason school is eight to whatever it is and extracurricular activities till five or six so yeah. that parents can go to work. Right. Yeah. Um, and until we have another uh, set of options for childcare, I don't think the school day structure is really going to change. Now there are definitely places that are experimenting with things like that. 
Um, but again, it's just hard, hard to make it possible because if a parent needs to take their seven or eight year old to school at some time that is inopportune for their work schedule, well, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to think about the whole system and how all of these systems, the working system, the educational system, the healthcare system, how they all intersect and how they're all kind of propping each other up. Um, and I, you know, I, I am an optimist, but I also see that that retooling all of these systems in a way that, you know, works better for individuals is maybe impossible. Like, do we have the political will to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Um, it, it feels a little pie in the sky, but I certainly think there are things that can be done better. And I, um, I am not an expert on them, but I was actually just at a great conference called ASU GSV, happens in San Diego every year. And it's sort of all of the people working on the kind of frontiers of education, education technology, and all of the people who are willing to fund them um, come together and share ideas and, and you know, almost every session I saw was about AI. Um, But there was a lot of stuff around, you know, bridging the gap between how, um, how we currently do the college process and what the shape of uh, high school education looks like, Um, educating parents better, taking into uh, consideration like cultural concerns about college or not college, um, and uh, making other options like non-college paths just as attractive um, to people who might want to pursue it as you know going the traditional path of college um, so there's a lot of really great stuff out there and I, I certainly think this um, industry is ripe for disruption especially with the mental health challenges we're seeing with our teenagers these these days you feel like you're uh, school and the parents as much as you are the the children well, certainly in my role, yes, I am educating parents every minute of every day. <laughs> um, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions about how the system works, and there are a lot of opaque areas where we'll never know why a certain decision was made. We'll just never know. And that kind of uncertainty is really hard to deal with. Um, but, you know, parents today spend more time with their kids um, than previous generations. And a lot of it is a, is because of uh, concerns around education. And parents are anxious, and that makes their kids anxious. <laughs> parents have high expectations. That makes their kids feel the pressure. Um, and so parents want to make sure they're not missing out on anything, that they're, like, making all the right decisions at the right time. And um, guidance counselors are also overworked. You know, they have way too many students to be able to give them each the attention that they really need because every student has their own set of unique challenges. Uh, And so if a guidance counselor can't make time for parents because they're already overwhelmed with the students, um, that anxiety has got to go live somewhere. And, you know, there's a lot of information on the Internet. Some of it's good. Some of it's bad. There are some bad actors out there. There's a lot of misinformation. And what what I combat a lot is what we call the high school whirlpool, where it's like the parking lot conversations of, oh, did you hear this kid did this, this, and that? He got into Dartmouth. And, oh, you know, I heard so-and-so's parents paid for a wing of, you know, this library or whatever. And, and maybe some of that is true and maybe some of it isn't. But just because one person did it doesn't mean it's what you have to do. 
It doesn't mean it's going to work for you, even if you did the exact same things. Um, but there is this kind of rumor mill and keeping up with the Joneses and you want to, you know, signal to other parents that you value education just as much as they do. And there's a status competition and, you know, education means so much more than just what a kid is learning these days. Um, so uh, there's a lot of noise to break through and there's a lot of misinformation to correct. Um, so I think, I think it's a vital piece of changing the system to make it easier on parents and kids is really making sure everybody's on the same page about what are the actual expectations? How do you develop a framework so that you can make decisions that work for your family? Um, because that's going to be different from how it works for somebody else. Yeah, and 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 the culture itself has changed in that aspect. Uh, I grew up in a in a household that I had divorced parents, so I lived with my mom, and obviously my mom had to work two jobs to 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 make ends meet. So there's a lot of times where I had to do everything myself because I just had to do it, mm -hmm. right? And I'm 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 seeing, and I'm sure that I'm I, I got to believe that still goes on today, yeah. obviously. But I see a lot more uh, of parents, and because of the work I'm doing, I see a lot of parents really involved in all aspects of, of their education, sports, and all aspects of their lives where, um, you know, where I, I didn't have that. And, and I think there's good, good and bad on that. Like mm -hmm. for me was like, I'm able to make, I think for me, I'm, I'm able to make decisions and I'm very comfortable being okay with making decisions. And if it doesn't go right, I'm okay with it because I've made many decisions that, that went wrong and I was able to fix it. Yeah. And I see a lot of uh, kids today and, and, and what I'm working with now is I feel like they're in a realm where they don't really have to make decisions too much. Mm -hmm. they, they're, they're leaning on their parents to do that. And, mm -hmm. and I think some of their parents are getting a little frustrated with them because they, they can't make a decision but unfortunately is because of the the household that the, the kids grew up in that's that's the the math that they're they're given they never learned to how to make those decisions for themselves and i think that's a really really key aspect to um navigating high school is it's a training ground not everything is going to be perfect they may have some you know less than stellar grades but as long as they're learning from those mistakes and learning how to you know, navigate a system and set goals for themselves and practice things, try things that might be hard and still keep trying. Those are the things that are gonna set them up for success in life. So if you never let your kid make a decision and then all of a sudden expect them to know how to make decisions, well, you're in for a rude awakening, right? We have to give our kids a safe place to practice making those decisions. And so what I encourage is, you know, starting in high school, certainly start giving them some independence, right? Whatever you feel you can trust them with, and maybe you feel like you can't trust them with anything, that's another conversation, but like start giving them ownership of certain things. Um, and yeah, they might make some mistakes, but you're going to be there to help them navigate it, but also maybe they'll figure it out on their own, right? You kind of have to see how they do um, and kind of default a little bit to just not being so, you know, protective of them, right? They're going to have mistakes. They're going to have sad feelings. They're going to be regretful sometimes, but those are all things that they can learn from and it'll make them stronger going forward.
And where do you see your uh, your company going forward in the future? Well, we're really leaning into the college admissions uh, and planning work that that we do. Um, we find that it allows us to just have such a, a great relationship with a student over two, three, four years sometimes um, to the point where, you know, I've got family saying like they're going to put me in their Christmas card. <laughs> um, you really, really become close with the family and you understand um, their hopes and dreams for their kid and you really understand their kid really well. Um, we have found that when we do college admissions advising alongside the kind of coaching work we do with teenagers, we have amazing results in a number of different ways, right? We get students who know themselves and understand what they want out of their education. So they're super motivated and they can make decisions about their future because they're, you know, well-informed by their own values. Um, and then beyond that, you get really great college admissions results because you've got kids who know what they want and they know how to evaluate, is this institution a good fit for me or not? Um, and you get parents who have literally watched their children become young adults before their eyes of all of a sudden, they're much more independent. They don't have to nag them about homework. They don't have to worry about how are they going to make this decision because they know their kids because their kid knows themselves and has practice talking about themselves. So we're really leaning into both of those two things together. And if uh, parents want to work with you or kids want to work with you, how would they do that? Well, first thing you can do is go to our website, signeteducation.com, or follow me on LinkedIn. Um, it's just under my name, Sheila Akbar. I share a lot of information there. I also have a podcast. It's called Don't Force It, um, because that's kind of my motto around like helping a kid get to get to where you want them to go. Just don't force it. Um, so there are lots of places you can hear kind of more of my ideas and, and learn more about my team. Excellent. I know we went away from uh, the Long Beach theme. But I'm, I was, I'm so fascinated with education mm -hmm. and, and where to take things that we went in a, a, a kind of a fun direction. But let's go back to Long Beach. Let's end sure. it on a, on a fun note. Where are the best places to eat in around the city of Long Beach? So my favorite restaurant in Long Beach, and I love eating out. So I've eaten at a lot of places. My favorite restaurant in Long Beach is El Barrio Cantina. It's on 4th Street, just off of Retro Row. It's fantastic kind of elevated Mexican food and really good drinks. Oh man, I, I have that's gotta be on my list. Now I, I normally go if I'm going in that area and I go to Mexican food, I go to Lola's. Yeah. Which and, is really good. Which it must be fairly close to, to Lola's then. It is about two blocks away from there, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to try it. Any other any other places since you go out a lot, what, what other places Well that's definitely my favorite. My other <laughs> it's kind of funny. My other favorite is like a sleeper Italian plot uh, place. Um and maybe it's not that sleeper, but you know, it's not um the places everybody goes for Italian food. So my, my favorite Italian place is the Italian homemade company. It's in second and PCH. It's okay. like really reasonably priced, very fresh, really good Italian food. Um, and wine, you can get some gelato there. It's a fantastic spot. Have you ever tried, uh, speaking of Italian, have you ever been to Vina and Cucina? Yeah, of course. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah, that's my favorite. So I'm going to try that. I love Italian food, so I'm going to have to try that. When I I pass by there all the time, but I never yep. I never went in there because the name great. sounds so generic to me. I thought, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a super casual spot too. It's not like a romantic date spot or anything, yeah. but it is really good food. Right on. Yep. Well, is there any other uh, things you want to leave our our viewers with? Uh, no. I just you know what? Maybe I'll thank the viewers because they make Long Beach 
Long Beach and Long Beach is like such a special place. It really is unlike any other, and I've lived, you know, all over the country. Um, it's a really special place and, and it totally feels like home. And that's not something I've had in a long time. Awesome. Sheila, I had so much fun talking with you. I've learned a lot about education and where things are going to go. I, I appreciate the time. Thank you, Paula. It was really fun too. No problem. It's been a Long Beach thing. Thank you for tuning into It's a Long Beach Thing. Please tune in next time for another great episode. Thank you and have a good rest of your day.